what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. Chris, my buddy, my pal, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to uh, the reviews we got coming We have the show. three objectives in this <laughs> show today. Three objectives, Chris. Should we choose to accept? Should we choose to accept? Okay. Nothing's going to blow up or anything. It's just these no, are just three objectives. No, I'm sorry. No oh, explosions yeah. today. Just three things we got to do. One, and I'm going in backwards order. Okay. We have to dissect and analyze the movie The Fantastic Four and what went horribly wrong with this film. Okay. We're actually going to get into a discussion about it. Not necessarily a review, although you're going to review it a little bit because you did see it, but more of a discussion of the news around this film in general. Okay. We've got a, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, we've got a review of the film Far From the Matting Crowd, but we're going to kick things off with a review of the latest Mission colon Impossible movie, Dash Rogue Nation. <laughs> so there's awesome. a lot of extra characters in the names of these Mission Impossible movies. So we've got a lot of things to do in this show. We're going to get started in just a moment, but just as a reminder to everybody listening, this is Foot Candle Films on the TheMesh.TV. The Mesh is our online podcast network of programs and original shows, uh, audio and video programs you can check out on themesh.tv. That's T-H-E-M-E-S-H.tv. You can even go all the way back in time to episode one of Foot Candle Films and binge listen for hours on end to our lovely radio-friendly voices. <laughs> and I mean, if you actually did do that, we may have to figure out some type of metal to yeah, get Yeah, we will come to your house and personally thank <laughs> you and even join you for some of the listening as well. So Chris, let's jump right into it. I already told you what our three objectives were, and of course we're going to wrap up the show with our recommendations for the, for the episode like we always do. But let's go right into the very first one, which is Tom Cruise's latest spy opus, Mission Impossible 5, Rogue Nation. Syndicate is real. A rogue nation trained to do what we do. An anti-IMF. They're coming after us with everything they've got. You ready? This may very well be our last mission. Let's make it count. So what's the play? You want to bring down the syndicate? It's impossible. How do you know we can trust her? Desperate times. Desperate measures. So, Chris, I, I, I know that we have talked about at least the last Mission Impossible movie on this show. I do remember us talking about Ghost Protocol, number four. I believe so. Yeah. And if I can we recall didn't review my, it, but we did discuss it. No, I think we reviewed it. Oh, did I'm we? pretty okay. sure we did. Somebody, our intern, will need to go fact check that for us. <laughs> I, I think I admitted then, and I'll admit again now, I'm a big fan of the spy genre in general. Right. I am. James Bond, big fan. Even you go to a film like Sneakers back in the 80s with Robert Redford, that I really did like. It was kind of a lightweight spy movie, but it was still a very fun spy movie. I think anytime you have a group of individuals with different skill sets coming together <laughs> to pull off some incredible feat 
or to break in somewhere or to steal something, that's when I get really excited. That's really fun for me. So does your love of the genre extend to like the Bourne series? Like, Not really. No. No. I love Bourne films are fine. But they're but more action than They're spy. more action than true spy. And gotcha. I'm saying the, the traditional gadgets and okay. plans and sneaking around and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Costumes, disguises, all that stuff. So, you know, let's look back at this Mission Impossible franchise. First one was Brian De Palma. It was like heavy on the spy side, almost to the point where it was confusing more than it was entertaining sometimes. I still really liked it. But I do agree that it's a very complex film to watch and really appreciate in one viewing. Then you got John Woo. And that's when the thing said, all right, screw the whole spy thing. We're going to go action and we're going to go John Woo-y on everything (laughs) and flying dubs and everything else. J.J. Abrams brought it back and said, all right. This is a spy film. We have to make it spy friendly. And they do, which to me, I still think the best moment in any of the films so far is the break into the Vatican with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character and they're swapping him out and having to coordinate that whole thing. To me, that was what a spy movie needed to be. Okay. Now, Ghost Protocol, you and I both watched, and I think we were both a little underwhelmed by it, despite all the positive reviews that came out about it. I was definitely underwhelmed. I did not see it in the theater. Yeah. I saw it at home and fell asleep several times. And I... I enjoyed it okay, but I wasn't blown away by it like everybody else in the world seemed to be. So that was Brad Bird, who is also somebody I was really surprised by because I liked, I really love The Incredibles. I love Iron Giant. Right. Uh, That one just didn't do as much for me, this Mission Impossible. So now we got Rogue Nation. Ethan and his team take on their most impossible mission yet because, of course, it has to get more and more impossible each time we go. Of course. Eradicating the Syndicate, which is an international rogue organization that is just like the IMF. Or as Simon Pegg says in the trailer, it's the anti-IMF. <laughs> so, Chris, with this, knowing your disappointment with the last one, Ghost Protocol, and in general, I don't strike that you're a huge fan of the franchise overall. Correct. Where does this one rate compared to the last one? I'm just going to say, is it better or worse than the last one? And then give me the reasons why, and we'll see if I agree or disagree. Well, um, you're right. I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of the Mission Impossible franchise. I... You know, the first two movies that I can remember, I liked them okay. I actually am not as hard on the John Woo thing. Really? I think because there was so much style in there. I kind of appreciated that more. Over- oh, yeah. There was a lot of style. There was a there. lot of style. I didn't really care about the spy stuff as much. I did like the third one. Yeah. So Abrams, that would probably be my top. Uh, Rogue Nation, Mission Impossible 5, is it better than the last one? Did I like it better than Ghost Protocol? Yes, mm-hmm. but that's not saying much. Okay. And um, the reason I think that I liked it better was two words, Rebecca Ferguson. Thank you. Um, so she plays the strong female lead in the, the movie yes. alongside Mr. Tom Cruise. Uh, which, it's uh, Ilsa. Ilsa Faust. Ilsa, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, she makes me like the movie. Um, she, I'd never really, I'd never seen her before. And she, you know, she's easy on the eyes, but she's also a good actress. Yeah, and the way she played some of the nuanced parts about is she bad, is she good, in less capable hands would have been laughable. But mm-hmm. in her hands, she did a good job. Okay. So that, that, that's what elevated this a little bit for me. Mm-hmm. So what your, your thoughts? Um, I did like it better than Ghost Protocol. Okay. Still not as much as the third one, because to me, the J.J. Abrams one, to me, with Phil Seymour Hoffman as the villain, that was the best the series has been. I really enjoyed Mission Impossible 3. That's still one of my favorite of the genre in general. Sure. 
So this one, you know, creeps a little bit closer, but I, I, I guess I'm getting a little concerned about where this franchise is going. Oh, it's going nowhere. Well, that's my thing is that everything is so self-contained in the movie. And it's very cookie cutter in a way. It's yes, let's have a very complex plot, but people aren't really worried about following the plot. It's all uh, what action set piece do we go to next? Let me blow your mind. Okay. And our listeners as well. This is not a spoiler. Uh, the action scene that you've seen in the trailers, if you haven't mm-hmm. already seen this movie, of Mr. Tom Cruise hanging outside of a plane. Um, this is not spoiling anything other than to tell you it is the very first part of the movie. Yeah, the so first what, I'm about, what I'm about to say isn't going to spoil the entire movie for right. you because it's in the first five minutes. What would have made this movie amazing is if he would have fallen from that plane. Mm-hmm. And that would have been it. And then everybody's complaints about how Jeremy Renner was brought in for Ghost Protocol. Oh, you're saying not ending the movie, ending Tom Cruise. Ending Ethan Hunt. Right. You're saying Tom Cruise actually dies. Yes. Okay. I would have... Yeah, you are kind of blowing my mind right now. Yeah, exactly. Because Jeremy Renner was brought in for Ghost Protocol. Okay. And everybody was saying, okay, he's going to take the role over for Tom Cruise. He's getting older. They're going to kind of change the franchise, reboot a little Mm. bit. He's going to become... And they didn't do that, and it was a big cop-out. He'd also been brought in to like, reboot the Bourne franchise as well. It didn't, didn't work, work out, out so well. He was still in this movie, though, yeah. and he kind of had like a backseat role. To me, that's, that's the weak link with Mission Impossible is – The over-reliance on Tom Cruise? Yeah, and I'm just – you know, Tom Cruise does have talent. But I am sick of seeing him be in Mission Impossible movies. They're not interesting to me. And one of the main reasons is I'm tired of Ethan Hunt. If I had never heard anything about Tom Cruise's personal life or it wasn't all over the tabloids and all that kind of mess, maybe it would be a little bit better. But I'll admit, that doesn't help. And so I just have a lot of problems distancing the character of Ethan Hunt from Tom Cruise. And it just really annoys me and diminishes my satisfaction of the movies i think somewhat tremendously i'm not to say like he is capable of good stuff it's just give him something like in magnolia where he had that role give him something different or tom i understand you i think are a producer and you have a big role in making these movies continue how awesome would it would have been if it somehow they could have generated like a crying game type thing or usual suspects type okay critics here's the deal you know and he dies in the open. That would have like been amazing. <laughs> so I will give you, it would have been a really cool way to approach the film. It would but have been I'm, mind blowing, but I'm going to disagree. It would have earned the 92% rotten tomatoes that this movie is being, but killed. I'm going to disagree with you on Mr. Okay. Cruz. Um, I am fine with the Ethan Hunt character. Ugh. I actually like the Ethan Hunt character. Why? I actually like Tom Cruise in these movies because My, he's running. He runs. He does. The first shot we see him, he's running across the Actually, airfield. nod, because that's a running joke amongst comedians yeah. everywhere. And I think that was an open acknowledgement. Oh, I, I think of, it was okay, very much. So, very first time you see him, he's going to be Tom. running at full cheers, speed. Cheers, Tom. Good yeah. job. <laughs> um, I, 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 I admire Tom Cruise in doing these movies. I really do. And yes, the whole he's doing his own stunts and all. Yes, it's overhyped. And yes, he's still extremely taken care of in all these shots, no matter no. what you may see. But I do admire the gusto of the guy. My, here's my problem with the, the Mission franchise right now. All these movies are so self-contained, somewhat cookie-cutter in the last two or three. J.J. Abrams' Mission Impossible 3 was the one movie that actually started to weave in a little bit of a through line of a story that could have continued into other films. Hmm. 
in that you knew a little bit more about the personal life of Ethan Hunt. Okay. If you remember in Mission Impossible 3, he starts out, he's married. He gets reached back out to by the IMF. By the end of the film, he and his wife are walking off together. Mission Impossible 4 rolls around. His oh, wife, by the way, wife's, uh, you're not married anymore. You know, yeah, his wife mm, was in there. She made a really quick appearance, She's but it was there. in a, oh, well, yeah, we're, we're kind of done now. Okay. So they wanted to move to this standalone, every movie kind of acts on its own. There's no continuing storyline. There's no development, I guess gotcha. that's what I'm saying, of character. I wanted Ethan Hunt to continue developing, and I thought that's where they were kind of go with number three, and they didn't. So I guess that's why I was a little disappointed in four, that there was no development of characters. It was just, hey, we're all super spies, and oh, we got an impossible mission, and here's how we're going to do it. And we do action scene, action scene, action scene. Everybody's happy at the end. And then the next movie comes up. I mean, you could rearrange the order of these last two or three with no issue. Actually, you could rearrange the order of all two through five now. Number one did have some chronological necessity to it. The last two or three have just been very interchangeable. I guess that's why I'm getting a little disappointed. This is becoming the James Bond franchise from the 70s and 80s. Absolutely, and that's why I can't stand it. Where it loses the (laughs) coolness that it had in the 60s, which is the James Bond when it started. Right. By the 70s, especially in the 80s, it started to get very kind of over the top, a little more campy, and it was so self-contained there was no development. James Bond was the exact same guy in every movie. And that's why... That's I, how can you defend Tom Cruise? That's why I have a problem with this franchise because that's the one thing they're not willing to do is yeah. boot Tom Cruise and put somebody well, new like Jeremy Renner in there and let him be the central. I'm not it. blaming Tom Cruise because if he enjoys doing these movies and I think he's good at them and good in them, I want him to keep doing them. Problem is you've got to force something that lets the characters breathe and develop more. And that's what these films are not doing right now. Now, let me turn the table a little bit and say, I will say, several of the action set scenes and the, the mission scenes were really well done. I will say this was a well-crafted action movie in tar- for terms of action scenes. My thing is, it's just I got numb after a while of just action scene, action scene, action scene. Yeah. If it wasn't for Rebecca Ferguson, I would have been really zonked out. But she definitely kept my interest throughout the film, every scene that she was in. Um, so I liked it better than you. I liked it better than the last one because at least it had Rebecca Ferguson. I think a couple of the scenes were a little more interesting. We're yeah. on the we're on the same page that we both liked it better than Ghost Protocol, yeah. but I definitely am not. You as, did not like. You're not liking the series in general right, at all at this point. Right. I'm okay with the series, but I'm really disappointed that they're not doing more interesting with it. Uh, and again, for me, character development would be the interesting thing. No one single character in this movie changed. From the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. And when the next movie comes out, those characters are going to be at the exact same spot when we see them. And they'll probably be at the exact same spot at the end of the movie again. Well, and it's so, you know, beating a dead horse, but it's so frustrating because somebody like Jeremy Renner has so much potential and he's sidelined just like Ving Rhames, you know, and it's like Ving Rhames is fine, but like, you know, it's just like you bring somebody in like that and then you sideline them. All they are is a minor character. It worries me. I hope to see Rebecca Ferguson in if they decide to make another Mission Impossible, which they probably will because it's making tons of money and it's well received. And then she gets nothing but sidelined as well. Well, I'll, like tell, it's you, just a, yeah. I'll tell you the thing you know, with the Jeremy Renner character, which does kind of bug me. It's not that, you know, he was brought in on Ghost Protocol and maybe there was the idea that maybe he could be groomed to be the next lead on it. And now he's just a side character, even in this one. It's the fact that he's an unnecessary character, yeah. completely unnecessary. Yeah. At least with your Ving Rhames and your Simon Pegg, they are part of a team and they have a role to play. 
Jeremy Renner is just basically a go-between. He's like, okay, I'm going to talk to Ethan and the team and let them know what's going on. And then I'm going to go back to Congress and try to figure out what's going on. And there's no point for his character. No. The movie could have been done without it. And that's a wasted character and actor, which is disappointing. Right. I would be perfectly happy if we actually saw in the next film, which you know they're making. I would assume. I'm perfectly fine with it being Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. I really Can he die Re- in the first scene? I want Rebecca Ferguson to come back. I think she probably will. I like Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames in this series because they're, they're the Q and M and all this. They play those consistent roles we need in this team. Yeah. But I want something to develop with Ethan Hunt. I either want relationship to develop. I either want him to retire at the end of the movie or I will. They tried that. Ghost protocol. But I want it to be a formal, not like a, he just, maybe this is a swan song. I want it to be like a formal, yep, I'm retiring. I'm retiring in this movie. You see me retire. I am done. I'm gone. I drive off in the sunset or I run <laughs> off with Rebecca or whatever it Let's is. have him run. He, do, he, he does need run. to run. <laughs> run somewhere. They can literally so, run off together. As an action movie, if this was the only action movie of this series and it was named Mission Impossible, I would enjoy it. It's just the fact that we're number five now. They're starting to get a little repetitive. I do like the fact that they change directors every film. That at least gives it a little bit more of an interest. You would think that would freshen it up a little bit more for me, but yeah. somehow that still hurts. So but um, hurts it. I had a fine time at the film. I didn't come out hating it. I didn't come out miserable or depressed about it. <laughs> I just wish that, man, I want more to happen. I guess that's why I'm such a big fan of the new Bond films, because they're continuing a story. Correct. You know, Casino Royale, we're still dealing with some of the same elements from Casino Royale, the first uh, Daniel Craig one. That's going to be happening in Spectre coming out Spectre later this year. Spectre is the fourth. It's the fourth one with Daniel okay. Craig, yeah. Yeah, see, that, to me, that's an example of what this could be and is not. Yeah. Um, he's, because, a, he's a developing character. He's right. growing over time. We're learning more about him as we go. Right, and they even had, you can't even say like, oh, you're just, because they had the misstep of the second movie, which yeah. a lot of people didn't like, but yet they were able to rebound, mm-hmm. and they've done three, and now they're about to come out with four. Yes. And, you know, Skyfall was a big bounce back and a big success so and again it was yeah. a continuation it was a continuation of his right. character continuation of some of the plot lines from the first movie it's completely different than the bond films were in the 80s and the, there it was just everything was standalone james bond was the same person in every single film with the same wise cracks and the same style right and it just got cartoonish after a while and i don't want to say mission impossible getting cartoonish but it is starting to get into that caricature of itself Almost every film now. I, I yeah, I don't know if it's character yet, but it's definitely I would think headed that way. I guess because I'm not a fan of him, but I will say I like Simon Pegg in this movie, and he yeah. does provide some comedic relief. And I think even though I love Simon Pegg, I think he's in it just enough because mm. you don't want him in there anymore. Yeah, because then I think it would get too cartoonish. Yeah, but he's in there just enough to provide some humor, but still let it be a spy movie. So he's another strong point for me. Uh, in this I do have to say, I absolutely love the motorcycle chase. Oh, from a yeah. from a visual standpoint, okay. I thought this filmmaking style for that motorcycle chase was extraordinary. Hmm. I mean, the angles that was shot, the closeness of everything, that the editing of it was just it was a really really exhilarating set piece. Um, so I will I will call that out. I thought that was okay. really good. The opening with the the jet sequence, I thought it was clever to make it kind of that very first thing mm-hmm. to to put so much marketing on it and it be done in the first three minutes of the film. I thought it was pretty funny, actually in a way and good. 
Beyond the motorcycle chase and the opening plane scene, I couldn't really tell you any other action set scene. So I guess that's saying something. That's <laughs> saying they all blend together. They did. They did. Yeah. And I will I, say the only moment in the film that was groan worthy for me was uh, actually the very end, the capturing of the bad guy. Really? Yeah. I kind of actually liked Did that. Did you? I thought that yeah. was that was the only time I started to kind of roll my eyes a little bit. Like, ugh. It start, that to me is where it's getting into the caricature of the spy movie, which I didn't like. No, the only reason I like I'm talking about that, the whole dropping down. I mean, I'm not spoiling right. it, but, you know, the whole case thing, the glass. Yeah. The case. Right. I actually like that. Okay. And not because it's a reflection of yeah. something, but I liked it because it actually reminded me of the TV show. That it's not just Ethan Hunt, it's a team, and they're all performing, and for everything to mm. go correctly, certain things have to lock into place, and then the team all being there at the end. I, I That kind yeah. of, I actually kind of liked it. Okay, all right. So, I thought it was a little hokey. Well, I mean, the show was kind of hokey. The show was. If they pulled a hokey theme the whole way through, it'd be, it probably would have been warranted I'm a sorry. little bit more. But. The weapon in the opera house, that's not hokey? Oh, no. Come on. That was fun. That was funny. I, I know what you're talking about. That was funny. Yeah, we're trying to keep it relatively yeah, spoiler-free. I mean, you know, Mission Impossible is not the kind of movie you can really spoil. Okay? True. Ethan Hunt's still living at the end. Unfortunately. Right. That's true. Uh, the team wins. <laughs> so we'll just... Spoiler. spoiler. Uh, that's Mission Impossible-Rogue Nation. Still uh, doing pretty good, box yeah. office-wise. Uh, got a lot of acclaim on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Chris and I are not quite at that echelon. No. Uh, Chris is saying, nah, not not really. I'm saying, eh, it's okay. It's fine, but it could be so much more. Then we'll leave it at that. All right, so Chris, let's uh, change gears a little bit and switch over to a different kind of film. We have the uh, period piece, Far From the Matting Crowd. It's your uncle's will. He's left you everything. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> From now on, you have a mistress, not a master. It is my intention to astonish you all. <laughs> Miss Everdeen's here now, so you better do your best work. You'll have to go to lend a hand. You don't think I would? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> hey! Far From the Matting Crowd is based on a novel by Thomas Hardy. And brief plot synopsis here is, In Victorian England, the independent and headstrong Bathsheba Everdeen attracts three very different suitors. Gabriel Oak, a sheep farmer, Frank Troy, a reckless sergeant, and William Boldwood, a prosperous and mature bachelor. What happens in the movie? You guessed it. Her struggle to decide, will it be bachelor number one? Bachelor number two or Bachelor number three. And we as the audience are the people sitting out in the studio audience wondering which one she will which one she will choose. Alan, we just came from a screening of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie Mulligan is the Miss Everdeen. We also have Michael Sheen playing the uh, prosperous and mature bachelor, Mr. Broad. Was it Broadwood? <laughs> See the, the names. Boldwood. Boldwood. Boldwood, I'm sorry. Yes. So um as well as a newcomer, which I was completely unfamiliar with, Matthias Schoenarts playing kind of the other major male character, Gabriel Oak, as well as Sam Phillips playing Sergeant Dog or Sergeant Troy. I'm Frank sorry. Troy. 
What's that? Frank Troy. Frank, Frank. Yes. I'm sorry, that was Tom Sturridge playing uh, Sergeant oh, Troy. Yes. I got my sergeant's nests up, mixed up. Um, so, Alan, what are you know? You and I, you know, probably not the target audience for this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it is you know, a period piece based on Thomas Hardy novel that neither you nor I have read. Um, Alan, what are what are your thoughts on this? I'm just going to go ahead and go on record and saying I think you and I are going to have some disagreements here. Okay. Because I really, really like this film. Okay. Well, actually, my thoughts on this film, um, you know, I decided to record them two hours prior to us going to <laughs> did see Did you really? You actually did that. You recorded so, your thoughts um, on the film before uh, you even saw it. Let's go to the tape. I'll okay. have my iPhone here with me, and right. we'll just play my little You're going to play your recording. Now. You recorded yes. this before the movie came on. Absolutely. Okay, So, right. here we go. If I can get my iPhone to work. It's about two hours before the Far From Adding Crowd screening, and I'm going to preemptively... Hello. Can I have a seven-layer burrito and a medium Dr. Pepper? I'm not eating healthy I think. Okay, is that Nope, that'll be it. Okay, I'll stand Uh, yes. Thank you. And I think that the movie, sorry about that, I do have to have dinner. I do think that the only thing that will probably keep me awake during this typical period piece will be the acting of Carrie Mulligan, but it may just barely keep me awake. Okay. All right. So that was your, besides the delicious dinner, it sounds like you had. Oh, yes. uh, Your thoughts were, it was just going to be Carrie Mulligan, if anything, was going to keep this entertaining for you. And despite having said that, I could not have been more wrong about being so bored by this movie. Okay. That is a general surprise that I must say. I was not bored at all. Okay. Um, This movie, not knowing anything about the source material, Mm -hmm. I was surprised at how many um, young and the restless moments there were. (laughs) Um, Hmm. Like twists and turns and like things that happen. Not necessarily they're unexpected, but how cliche it became. And that actually entertained me because I was like, are you kidding me? For example, in any movie I go see, I try to give it, you know, especially with a genre that I'm not big on, like a costume piece. I'm like, you know, this isn't meant for me. So I kind of give it the strike system, like in baseball. Okay. So first strike came up with uh, the sheeps on the cliff. I'll just, or sheep Mm -hmm. on the cliff. I'll Mm kind of say the first strike. I was like, really? Okay. But you know, still, still on board. Second strike, strike came with the uh i'll just kind of be evasive the runaway bride sequence a bride doesn't make right. it to her wedding okay, okay so that was that was second strike mm-hmm. third strike unfortunately happened with the uh rendezvous on the road between uh Bathsheba everdeen and the sergeant for the first time i was like really this is really happening and unfortunately those weren't the it wasn't only three strikes against this film i have a fourth mm-hmm. and a fifth hmm. uh there's a drowning that happens <laughs> Yes. And some aftermath. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. Um, saving the grapes from the rain sequence. Ridiculous. Like, it just kept piling on layers of ridiculousness. But, you know, actually, because it was piling on the layers of ridiculousness, it made me enjoy it. But from kind of a, honestly, you know, I guess I'm the jerk, but, you know, mocking it because it was so much fun to laugh at. This movie minus the sex is just as ridiculous as 50 shades of gray. 
I mean, it is just, it's the Victorian era, era Fifty Shades of Grey. It is ridiculous. And it has nothing to do with the direction or the actors. It's just that, the novel. That's all fine. It it's is the, the novel. source material. Okay. It is the source material. Well, let's material separate that out. I'll, I'll, absolutely. Because absolutely. I agree the source material has its contrivances. It has its cliches. It has some. Has but you know what? I had to suffer through Gone with the Wind just a couple months ago. And you want to talk about a movie that piles on the melodrama cliches and all that. It, I'm sorry. I look at this and I, I was able to go into it and say. But at least Go With the Wind had some history about the Civil War. There was something you were getting from it. Oh, I didn't get anything from that. <laughs> it's, to me, it was a, it's, a, it's a reflection of the period in which the stuff was written. It was a novel. Yes, the novel was cliche and soap opera-ish and all that. But, you know, if you're adapting a novel, you adapt the novel. And I felt like this is – I'm looking at this film as, man, okay, the novel is never something I'm going to read. Never. Okay? Yeah, I'm on the same a, page I am you. not a fan of this type of novel. I'm not a fan of this type of story. Sure. But you know what? If you're given a book and say, I'm going to adapt this book into a film, by God, they did it. And it was really good. I was able to look past the contrivances and cliches and say, this is a reflection of the novel. I am watching a visual presentation of this novel. So I'm looking at it from a acting, directing, cinematography, all the way it was put together. And I really enjoyed the total package of it. More than I ever thought I would. I really thought I was going to sleep through the film last night. Because oh, I had three hours of sleep the night before. <laughs> I even told the crowd last night before the film started, I'm going to be in the back corner. If I start snoring, kick the seat and let me know. Wow. Because I apologize. It's not a reflection on the film. It's just I'm really tired. Huh. And I didn't sleep one single bit. I even watched it again the second night tonight. This is not at all the kind of film I would ever find myself liking, but something about the way it was put together and the acting on display totally worked for me. See, I, I don't know of another time that I have ever been so rolling my eyes at the subject matter, at the plot, at the script, but have been able to appreciate the performances because mm -hmm. I'll go ahead and say, Carrie Mulligan, she just really, in my mind, can do no wrong. I just I thought her character was irritating and wanted to punch her, but I thought her acting of that character was was excellent. Michael Sheen, I mean, of course he's he's awesome. There's no, I thought he was really good. And the guy who played Gabriel Oak, the names too were so well. They're eighteen ridiculous. hundreds names Gabriel in the novel. Oak, I mean, the strong man like Francis Troy. Like uh, all of your all of your issues are with the book. Yeah, it's true. Okay, it's all true. your issues are with the it's book. True. You know, it's almost like somebody said, okay, here's the book, See Spot Run, turn it into a movie, okay? And right. you may think See Spot Run is the dumbest book I've ever read. It's the most simple, basic book I've ever read, yeah. but I got to turn it into a movie. So how do I turn this into a movie and make it work on the screen? You know, that's to me, that's well, where this that's, film shines. Ultimately, that's why I can't come down and say this is a bad film. It's not a bad film. The acting is good. I thought the directing was good. The cinematography, I have to actually... You know, not only did it look, you know, pretty and it looked nice, but I think it's actually kind of daring because there are several times when in a typical period piece, there would be static slow zoom in shots or static shots to establish like mood. And specifically, the one I'm thinking about is there's a point where there's a dinner scene and people are singing and then Everdeen, it's her time to mm -hmm. sing. And she has this duet with somebody else. And normally those would be shot in like these kind of romantic medium shots or close-ups. But instead, they actually do kind of a um, 
you know, roaming camera, unsteady cam, and it's actually kind of jerky. And mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised that that's used in a period piece because normally that's that's a common technique right. nowadays to do kind of the MTV roving camera. And that was used a couple of times, and that really took me by surprise. And I thought it was was interesting, and it actually kept me interested in those moments that otherwise I was rolling my eyes at. I, I honestly think, and this, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know this for a fact, but – Looking at this film, uh, and we've got the director. Uh, yeah, let's. So let's talk about that a little bit. So we have that, yeah, the we absolutely. have these these filmmakers. Uh, the director was uh, Vinderson, correct? Uh, Vinterberg. Vinterberg. Thomas Vinterberg. Thomas Vinterberg. Who yeah. really? He's made four movies, but really only one that people may have actually seen, and that was The Hunt. And that was nominated with, for Best Foreign Film. It was Mad Mickelson, mm-hmm. um, same cinematographer. In okay. that film as well. And then they did two very, very small, independent, low-budget films before that together as well. So, you know, they basically have made four films together as a partnership, cinematographer and director. And I'll tell you, I mean, again, this is not the source material I would ever want to see a movie about. Got you. But after watching this, I'm like, okay, not only do I need to go hunt out The Hunt, because I've never seen it before. I have seen it, yeah. and it's good. Okay. But I also want to keep tabs on what these two are doing. Uh, hopefully, they're working together again and again, because cinematography wise it was beautiful the director got the best performances out of his actors absolutely it's like a perfect marriage i agree the source material it's hokey it's cheesy i almost wonder if it was done as a dare can we turn far from the matting crowd into a really good movie well and let's let's speak a little bit about the hunt which is good you described a little bit but it's about a teacher in a small town that gets accused of molesting a child Mm -hmm. and it is not happy it is very dark um, and disturbing. A lot of disturbing things happen. And yeah, maybe it wasn't dare to be like, tell you what, dude, let's have you adapt Thomas Hardy's movie, you know, book into a movie. You know, bravo. And I will say, even though I'm not the biggest fan on the movie because the subject matter held me back, but like you've mentioned, there are a lot of strong points. And I have to say, if I'm going to see a period piece, hmm. I wouldn't mind being, it being from Thomas Venterberg <laughs> because like, you know, yeah. if he does, yeah. do I have any desire to see another adaptation of Jane Eyre? No. Mm-hmm. If this dude's doing it, huh, maybe. okay, maybe. All right. <laughs> so it sounds like on the film, and I'm saying the film, not the novel on the film. We were both pretty, pretty impressed with pretty it. Pretty high on it. Yeah. I'm very impressed with it on the novel. I didn't mind the novel. I guess again, there again, I still look at it compared to gone with the wind, which I still have a lot of resentment for right now because <laughs> I, I sense that <laughs> it's just, to me, it was just overdraw melodrama. Now there again, I'm sure this it is was, full of melodrama, well, but do a different scope to in my mind. This is a lot more localized melodrama. I mean, nothing's earth shattering here, but yet in gone with the wind, it felt like everything was just the end of the world. And, oh yeah, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, I got you. Okay. And, you know, and the characters, I mean, you want to talk about not really liking Bathsheba Everdeen as much in the movie. One I could not punch stand her. Scarlett O'Hara. Right, right. You know, so I at least respect Bathsheba a little bit more, I guess, because I'm using that as a little bit of a basis comparison. There's a lot of comparisons. Actually, I wanted to, to me, punch the, both of them. Well, to me, the two movies have a lot of comparisons. Absolutely. Strong, independent woman, mm-hmm. multiple marriages. Some of the drama surrounding all those marriages, a consistent male figure that kind of has to follow her along her life that you know they're probably going to get together, do the, but do you don't know stuff, for sure. I don't, it's been uh, a while since I've seen Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Are the coincidences as eye oh, rolling yeah. in Gone with the Wind? Absolutely. Okay. People just show up at the right time. People meet <laughs> on the right time. I mean, okay. it's, I think that's just the nature of the novels that were written there. It's like 
they didn't worry about conveniences or contrivances or coincidences. Sure, it's a period Here, thing. Here, yeah. in today's society, we're all so super critical of, oh, that would never happen. Oh, my gosh, what a crazy coincidence. I think back in the 1800s, you're writing novels. You want it to be as moving a story to get the story moving as possible. And now you take a novel like that and you got to cram it into a two-hour movie. I mean, yeah, mm. they're going to be. Yes, the Sheba is going to walk out of the dance at exactly the right moment and see Frank coming up the, the walkway. Oh, my yes, gosh. it's a it's a contrivance. But it's a reflection of the novel, and it had to happen that way to get the story along. Well, and I'll say the thing that, you know, despite the story, there's some instances that are melodramatic. But I think actually, here again, the director, I think it was a choice on his part, and I think it was the actors working with him to actually dial down melodrama and actually make something that's pretty freaking incredible. Mm -hmm. And the scene that I'm thinking about is when Gabriel's out working <laughs> Although I did not like the saving the grapes scene, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he it's the next morning and he's out kind of finishing up, making sure the grapes are okay. And uh, Boldwood walks up and they have they oh, talk yeah. back that's and forth. That's a really good scene. That is devastating. Well, that is, because, and here's the thing too yeah. that's kind of amazing. I mean, I'm kind of championing, and I guess, but don't like the film overall because of the source material in the book, but. That scene is one of the few scenes I can think about that I've ever seen that has males pining for a female on screen and both are kind of like sad sacks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't, you know, usually you show like the male, the girls are just pining after the, you know, this handsome man and like you see them like sad. Yeah, but th- this is one of the few instances that I can think of where. It was done, but it wasn't over the top. It was very kind of subtle Mm -hmm. and underplayed. And it was just that scene I thought was really well. I give credit Michael Sheen in that scene that his character probably fascinated me more than any other character in the film because it started with one perception that was going to be very stereotypical Mm -hmm. for some of the period pieces and movies we see. You actually see him break down to a true human Mm -hmm. by that scene, which I thought was really good. Yeah. And you build up this real sense of sympathy for where he is mentally and in his state in life. So that where before he might have was seen as a little bit of a joke. It's like, oh, here's the pompous old guy who lives next door and you know, he's so well-to-do and all. But you really start to get into that guy's head later on and figure out where he is. Sure. I personally, I mean, I, I thought the character of Gabriel Oak, I really like the character. All right, the name's cheesy. The name is but, ridiculous. I'm sorry, but the character's really good because it's just you've got a guy who he's not the kind of guy that's going to wear his heart on his sleeve. Right. He doesn't let people in very much. Even the very first scene we see him, he's a man of very few words, very True. few emotions, but he is a constant presence. And I mean, it's just the scenes where he and, and Bathsheba actually have some dialogue. There are three or four of them in this movie. I thought were just really well done. And again, Source material may have been a little on the nose and cliche. <laughs> sure. But I think these two actors pulled it off and made it believable as cliche as it may have been in the book. Right. And I, I think, you know, it's, I guess, poor form on my part because I can't forgive cliches in this, you know, old Thomas Hardy novel. Yet I can forgive cliches in something like one of my favorite movies like Prometheus or something like, you know, science fiction cliches stuff like that. I forgive sure. all the time, but some, well, you're right. Though. Reason, I mean, this novel was obviously a very 
we've seen so many of these period pieces. This one was the quintessential period romance novel. Okay, I get that. Right. You know, if we had never seen another novel from the 1800s that had to do with royalty and princes and love and marriage and all that, then this may have been groundbreaking for us. But we are so used to that style of, of movie or, or novel that this is the, you look it up in the dictionary, I want to see a classic period romance movie that's full of cliches and everything. This is it. This is, this it. is the one that comes up. Right. It's just, I think we're a little, I think we're a little jaded to it. Right. Maybe rightfully. So I just look at it as, Hey, what's the source material? What are we going to do with it? How are we going to make this a good movie? And I think it worked. I think it worked really, really well. And that's coming from someone who, this is not my type of movie at all. <laughs> so anyway, right. okay. interesting. All right. So I was right. I didn't think you'd care for it. I really thought I'd be struggling staying awake, so it it surprised me. So it entertained you in a way that it didn't mean to entertain you. Yeah, in a way that it didn't mean to entertain me. And, you know, had I been aware, and I think that's my other problem, all self-imposed, is going into this movie, I knew it was a romance, but I expected it to be less soap opera young and the restless, like all Mm -hmm. these coincidences. I didn't know that. You know, if I'd have known that that it was going to have all that stuff in it, I probably could have let go and just enjoyed some of the ridiculousness. Well, see, I think I knew that going in. See, I, actually, I didn't know that. All, I didn't watch the trailer. All I saw was the one paragraph about this young independent woman and three men pining for her. Mm-hmm. And have, I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally know what this film is going to be like. And yes, story-wise, it was well, exactly what I expected. And I think, I think I thought it was not knowing. I thought it was going to be more along the lines of something like Jane Eyre or Wuthering mm-hmm. Heights where it's not like – all these cliches keep happening. I mean, like mm. I, I was telling you, there's so many. I've mentioned like five, but there's so many more. And I wasn't aware of that. But um, It was I like did, an 1800 soap opera. Right. And if I had been able to just relax and let go, I probably would have enjoyed it. I will say um, one of the crazy, ridiculous, like cliche things that happens, someone gets shot and seeing that in a movie theater with an audience, I would have never <laughs> predicted the reaction that happened. People clapped and then laughed because yes. they were clapping. That was one of the weirdest moments I've had, especially in a period piece. It wasn't like you're oh, watching yeah. an Arnold Schwarzenegger where he blows the head off a deadly robot and everybody cheats. No, it's, you know, this is a Thomas yeah. Hardy novel being adapted into a movie. You know, mm. just so pretty unique experience there yeah so i got to give it to this movie that it gave me that i found myself really liking this film much more than i ever expected to i i think i summed up my reasons why i I think i was able to look past the source material and look at it as a film adaptation of that and really really liked what i saw so uh i will take this over gone with the wind any day go ahead write in your hate (laughs) mail now i don't care Gone with the Wind versus this. I'm going with this every any, any day, any week. So um, that's Far From the Matting Crowd. That's the latest from uh, Thomas Vinterberg. Did I say it right? Yeah, Vinterberg? I think so. Sure. Um, I'm definitely going to go check out The Hunt now because I'm really kind of intrigued and want to see what these guys are working on next. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we've got a really deep, uh, in-depth discussion of what happened with the Fantastic Four. And if you don't know what we're talking about, don't worry. We'll explain it to you here in just a moment. And then we'll wrap up the show with our recommendations uh, for the episode of something we think you ought to check out online or find available that you might have missed or not aware of. So stay tuned. Foot Candle Films will be right back. I'm with the band on the TV, features regional music acts discussing their craft and live performances. 
Subscribe to I'm With The Band on TheMesh.TV and swim around in the heads of your favorite regional musicians. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. Chris, before we jump into our, our in-depth discussion here, a um, couple quick reminders for everybody. We do have our film festival coming up September 25th through the 27th of 2015, in case you're listening to this way in the future. Um, that is happening in Hickory, North Carolina, our hometown. And uh, we've got quite an impressive lineup. We've got 11 feature films, 14 short films, all to show in a basically a 48-hour period. And uh, we've got some award ceremony. We've got opening reception. We've got a lot of fun stuff happening that weekend. A lot weekend. of filmmakers are going to be attending. A lot of filmmakers attending. We're really excited. Um, I know that there'll be something we do podcast related either shortly after the festival or something that we do with it. Uh, but, you know, if you want to come join us, here's the here's the deal. Uh, by late August, I'm not going to say a date because we haven't really officially announced a date. It will not be before August 24th. Yeah. It'll probably be August 24th or shortly afterwards. Right. Tickets will go on sale for all of the film screenings that we're doing to the general public. We, we released them to our members, Film Society members, just uh, uh, last uh, a few days ago. But we are s- releasing them to the general public in the later days of August. So mm-hmm. as you're getting this episode... If either, A, you live in the uh, western North Carolina region or you're interested in making a trip down here, it's a beautiful time of the year, mm-hmm. late September, I encourage you to go to footcandlefilmfestival.com. And there is a link off of our main footcandle.org website. Either way, you get there. Uh, after the date that we turn it on, you will be able to buy tickets to any of the films and come join us. And I do mean it seriously. If you are going to be traveling from out of the area and you're hearing about the festival through this podcast, please let us know because we would love to meet you and say hi and welcome you to our area. And if you're listening to the podcast before the end of August, that last week, the 24th or whatever, you can still check out the films that we're going to be showing. We have Mm -hmm. a schedule up. We have trailers. You can say, oh, yeah, there are some things I definitely want to keep on, you know, when Mm -hmm. the tickets are going to be out because we already have the information up there now. That's right. Yeah, you can definitely go ahead and check out what the selections are. And then uh, when the tickets go on sale, hit some buttons, click some links, and you got some tickets waiting for you. So uh, we'd love to have you come out and join us. It's going to be a fun, uh, fun weekend. It's hopefully the first of many to come in the years to come. All right, so Chris, um, I'm really looking forward to this talk Excellent. because I, I am I'm the guy that I love reading about box office receipts and box office performance of films on Sunday night. Okay, okay. Sunday night I go to Variety.com and always the headline on it's Sunday like your evening. Version of fantasy football and stuff. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That Sunday evening and basically the headline on their homepage is what was the box office like this past weekend? Okay. And I'm reading it on Wednesday, Thursday to see what the predictions are, and I'm reading it again on Sunday to see what the perform what it actually turned out. Okay. So let's knowing that and knowing that I'm also a comic book fan, this whole situation with this film, The Fantastic Four. A uh, little background, you know, Fantastic Four has been around since 1962, I believe, in Marvel Comics. It was like the first superhero team that Marvel Comics ever did. So it predates the X-Men, predates the Avengers. Predates Spider-Man by even like, I think, a year. Okay. So this was like their granddaddy comic. This was their main characters. They have brought it to film technically twice. This being the third. Well, this is the third iteration of films. Right. Now they had Roger Corman did a film back in the oh. early 90s that nobody saw because it was not released. Okay. Because it was pretty bad. Okay. Although it's on YouTube. If you do some creative searching, oh, you can find is it. Is there anybody famous in it? Oh, no. Okay. Nope. Um, it is not good. Hmm. 
it is cheesy. It is really cliche. Uh, going back to our argument of Far From the Madding Crowd, mm-hmm. uh, special effects were almost non-existent. It was really, really bad. Did not get released. Okay. But it was one of those where it was made because I think they were trying to keep rights in place. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yes, it is. That's okay. You know where I'm going with all this now. I do. So in the 90s, and well, actually in the early 2000s, they did another crack at it. And this was the one that I believe it was Tim Story was the director. And they did, yeah. Did the Fantastic films. Four and did a second one, The Rise, Rise of the of Silver, the Silver, Silver Surfer. Surfer. Yeah. Both of those films I saw in the theater. Yeah, I, didn't, I just didn't care for them. It was kiddie. It was light. It was... Just not fun for me. I saw both of them at home. Second one was better than the first. A little bit better. But that's not saying much. No. There was still a lot of hokey, cheesy moments. And and just actors really didn't blow me over. Except Chris Evans as the Human Torch, who I did think was really, really good in both films. So, interestingly enough, Fox owns the rights to Fantastic Four. Fox is not Marvel. Fox owns the rights for Fantastic Four, and they own the rights for the X-Men. Right. To keep the rights to make the film, they have to be making a film every so many years. If they do not make a film every so many years, they lose the rights and they go back to Marvel. Marvel obviously is on kind of a winning streak with all their films and the films they have rights to. Uh, Spider-Man is owned by Sony. So that's kind of the breakout of films right now of characters. Sony is partnering with Marvel on Spider-Man. So they're going to kind of get them back into that wheelhouse pretty soon. Fantastic Four, though, is kind of doing their own thing. Now, you've got a, a director, and I'm doing a lot of setup here, and I apologize, but this is more to just get everybody right. on the same page, and then I really want to hear some thoughts. Sure. So Josh Trank, the director, was named as the director for a new Fantastic Four movie. Correct. He directed Chronicle. Which you have recommended as one of your recommendations on the I show. Did. I caught up with, and I liked. You did like. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a surprising movie mm-hmm. in that it was, even it being a found footage movie, which I'm not a big fan of, it was good. The characters were really good. I don't. I think Dane DeHaan probably had a lot more to do with that than anything because he was really good in the film. And Dane DeHaan went on to be a bad guy in the most recent Spider-Man movie. Yeah, we're, we're not going to talk and about that And Michael anymore. B. Jordan, who was in that movie, went on to do Fruitvale Station and then is now in the this Human Fantastic Torch. Four movie. So Josh Trank is named as the director. Yeah, some pretty good enthusiasm behind that because everybody liked Chronicle and thought, mm-hmm. okay, cool, that would be good. Uh, Michael B. Jordan was named as the Human Torch, which – He's white in the comics. Little bit of a kerfuffle about that online with the comics community about, oh, why are you changing the character? But, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, no. whatever. Uh, Miles Teller was named as Mr. Fantastic, who we both really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, liked him in Whiplash. Liked him in the uh, uh, Spectacular Now. Mm-hmm. Really good young actor. Kate Mara as the Invisible Girl, which I don't have any dislike for her. I think she's fine. I liked her in House of Cards first yeah, I season. She was fine in House she's of fine. And then, uh, then you've got Jamie Bell, who is the, the one I know the least about. Billy Elliot. He was Billy Elliot. I do <laughs> know that. I, and I know he's in the, a TV show on A&E or something like that. Okay. Um, or it's one of those cable networks. As, I think ben, he, as Ben Grimm. He got cast because of his face and because of like a scowl that he does. Okay. It, to me, it just very characteristically I see. says the thing and says Ben Grimm. So he's the guy that turns into the big rock guy, the thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have this movie. Um, there's troubled production issues as it's being made. Supposedly Josh Trank rumors are that he was not a very good director. He 
freaked out a lot. He hid himself in his tent a lot. He had supposedly a tent that was put put up that he wouldn't allow other people yeah. in. He had a shroud kind of around the that's like dailies the, the that word. he would be watching. Right. That's the, that's the were, word we on the street. We were not on set. We supposedly he was even instructing his actors when to blink and breathe on camera. I have heard that as well. Um, now, granted, all hearsay rumors. Right. Uh, Fox came out and made statements saying, nope, we're totally behind them. We like his vision. Everything's good. Then there were rumors about reshoots, about Fox stepping in and having certain scenes redone, maybe a Michael, uh, uh, Matthew Vaughn, a big director coming in and helping ghost direct some scenes just to get it back on track. Wow. All these rumors bouncing around. I hadn't heard Matthew Vaughn's yeah. name. So then the, uh, then the early screenings came out. The early screenings had positive reviews. But it was also a much more controlled crowd and kind of a big celebratory event. So you kind of think the enthusiasm was just over the top high anyway. Then the critics started coming in. And, and Josh Trank tweeted out. Yes. Yes. Probably the most damning is like I think the day before the film was released said the film that's hitting theaters is basically not my vision. I had a good version of this back in April. Yeah. Sad reality is it'll never be seen. But I yeah. guess that's just the way things work out. So, yeah. where we're left Something with is a 9% Rotten Tomatoes score, well underperforming at the box office. Um, Chris, you saw this film. I did. So tell me, did the hype damage make this film worse in everybody's mind than it really was? Or do you think the 9% Rotten Tomatoes and all the rumors and things you're hearing online are justified after seeing this film? I uh, Make no mistake, this is not a great movie. Okay. Um it does have some problems. However, that being said, is it worthy of 9%? Absolutely not. Okay. Uh, one of the movies we've discussed on this show, After Earth, made mm. 13% Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. So this was ranked lower. I think this is the lowest ranked Rotten Tomatoes movie that I have ever seen. I'm pretty mm. sure. I've seen some other low ones, but they're not not anything of this prominence. I don't think I've ever seen single digits that I've actually watched. Okay. Um, but no, it, this isn't a great movie, but it's not as bad. And I think all the negative publicity, um, has caused people not to go see it. And I think some critics are being kind of lazy and just piling on. Well, that's what I always get worried about sometimes is that I think the for a studio, I don't think bad reviews are the things that they worry about. I think bad Word of mouth. Word of mouth yeah. rumors before a film comes out is what kills them. Because right. not only does it kill them in the public, I think critics kind of feed off of that sometimes. I think when they – it's like a shark in the water. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's a film that's supposedly a real troubled production. I'm going to go in and be even extra critical to it and pick out everything wrong and give it a negative review. And I think not – you know, sometimes you and I have championed something like The Lone Ranger, which we weren't saying was a pinnacle of movie making. No. But we're saying, you know, it's not as bad as a lot of people are saying it no. is. It's actually kind of a fun time at the movies. This movie, I think the main problem – I liked Josh Trank as a director. He was good in Chronicle. Granted, I've only seen yeah, you know, this movie in Chronicle. He – basically, I think – Fox set him up to fail. Hmm. Um, They wanted somebody that could direct a movie they thought was going to make him a lot of money. He did Chronicle for them. So that did make him money. It was shot for basically nothing. Mm -hmm. So they made money off that. And I thought they were thinking this is going to be the next J.J. Abrams. Hmm. We're going to get this guy or the next Gareth Edwards who did Godzilla. Like they were thinking we're going to get this kind of nobody and we're going to luck out and he's going to make us this huge, huge movie. And 
I think Josh Trank, the kind of filmmaker, granted I don't know him personally, but he was never going to make the type of Fantastic Four movie that Fox wanted or expected or that the public expected. Mm. And so basically it was kind of a mismatch. You know, it was something like if friends were, you know, saying like, oh, don't get married. You know, you, she's never going to work out or he's never going to work out. And like the people get married anyway. And sure enough, a year later they get divorced. Like mm. that's exactly hmm. what happened. And I think from a business standpoint, from an inside Hollywood standpoint, mm-hmm. it's kind of fascinating. Sad mm-hmm. that it affects you know, a lot of people's lives because they're going to lose a lot of money if they invested in the movie or, you know, I would be interested to see, is Josh Trank going to work again? Well, <laughs> you know, is, or is he going to be M night Shyamalan because of one movie? Well, now here's the deal. You even I'm M night Shyamalan kept, he did making movies. He did. And that's the thing. Even as bad as his movie got trash, he's still every three years or so, a new M night Shyamalan movie comes out. We've mm-hmm. got another one coming out. I think this winter, a horror, yes. a horror movie. I believe so. And he, he did after earth. He did after earth. <laughs> And he, right afterwards, he did Wayward Pines, which I thought was a great TV show. I actually recommended it. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm worried about Josh Trank just because I, and I think the most damning thing was, was Star Wars. Correct. Because back in, uh, before this movie finished and before it was released, he was, we had talked about on the show, yep. Josh Trank was supposed to direct Rogue One. Uh, it was a it was a standalone movie okay. in the Star Wars universe. I don't remember which one it was, but it was just he is tapped for one of these standalone movies, and he got booted. Booted. This was right in the midst of start people starting to wonder if Fantastic Four is going to be any good or not, and that production was wrapping up. There was some negative rumors starting to swirl, and then that announcement came from from people with Star Wars saying, "No, nah, he's not on there anymore. We've parted ways." Right then, that's when everything hit. That's when everything said, "Okay." This must be a bad production at Fantastic Four. There must be really some issues. We think we got a little uh, hosed by uh, Mr. Trank bringing him on board. And then you hear even more rumors of production. And then the bad reviews start coming out. And then his his tweet a couple days before opening day. I think, you know, Gary, again, I'll have to wait and see the next movie that he makes. But I think he is a very stylistic filmmaker and he may be one of those where he's not a really good gun gun for hire because Mm -hmm. he has his own vision if he had been allowed i feel like some of his vision is in this film because i think he did help write some of it but it had a a lot of other writers but i think if he would have been allowed to put out his fantastic four movie as he had it i think it i kind of agree with his tweet i think it would have held together better now would have everybody have liked it would it be a success? Maybe not, but I think it would have been better than 9%. Okay. Okay. So I think let's, let me get down. Cause I did see the movie. Sure. Basically the movie is obviously it's an origin story cause they're trying mm. to reboot things. Yes. Josh Trank kind of takes a very realistic approach like he did in Chronicle sure. to some very ridiculous subject matter. I mean, it's a superhero movie. Okay. Mm. But I think he tries to add his, like, realism and ground it. And not only that, but he makes the Fantastic Four, which, yes, they do end up being a team. But these people are have interpersonal relationships where they're really struggling. Basically, it sets it up where Mr. Fantastic, or he's not called that, but sure. Ben Richards and – or Reed Ben Grimm and Reed, Reed Richards. Richards. Basically, the, the guy who ends up being the thing and the guy who's Mr. Fantastic who can stretch. Miles Teller, Jamie Bell – he sets them up as having this tight friendship. They get to know each other and have a tight friendship when they're young. And then because of what happens when they are transformed into the fantastic four people, 
Ben Grimm, the thing, does not like Reed Richards anymore. Hmm. He basically hates him and blames him for this misery that he's in. And so it's more about like the struggles about these people, you know, not getting along. What happens when your friend doesn't like you or lets you down and hating mm-hmm. like you feel betrayed. And there's a lot of interesting things. Hmm. So not interested in action scenes and not interested really in the fact that this is a fantastic four movie. Yeah. Interested in more about people and relationships. And in a way, also, it made me think of Tomorrowland, which is a movie mm-hmm. we've discussed on the show because that's a lot about the future and people having dreams and what happens when things don't work out and kind of it is what you make it and when something's wrong, how you try to fix it. There were echoes of that with the Reed Richards character and something goes wrong and he pulls away and that's perceived as being a chicken, but he's really or like he's running away from a problem instead of trying to fix it. Like there's some interesting parallels. Hmm. So... Is this a good movie? No. And ultimately, I think there again, who knows, because I wasn't on set. But when you're talking about there were callbacks for some reshoots, the third act of this movie is ridiculous. Yeah, it's nothing but an I've action heard. sequence. And there's a character, Dr. Doom. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked how not being overly familiar with the comic book, I like how in this movie he was woven in as actually being part of a team with the fantastic four people and he was friends with them and they worked together circumstances end Mm. up not working out that well. And obviously he becomes a bad guy. Well, in the final third set piece, he, Dr. Doom (laughs) basically became sorcerer's apprentice, Mickey from Fantasia Mm. where he was like standing on top of a mountain, directing various things like exploding Mm. and blowing up. And it really looked like that scene from Fantasia sorcerer's apprentice. That's how ridiculous and over CGI Wow. And just horrible it was. So I was kind of with this movie in in the first two parts, you know, yeah. first two thirds. The last third was just Well, your horrific. cinemas there are pretty much what everybody online is echoing to, okay. is saying that a lot of people I've read say, hey, you know what? The movie wasn't that bad until it got to the one year later card, which set up the third portion of the film. Right. And then that whole part felt rushed, tacked on, over the top didn't match the tone of the rest of the film. Is that fair enough to say there? Uh, yeah. But I, I still say if you are interested in Hollywood, interested in movies, if you like the Fantastic Four, this movie is not a complete waste of time. Is it right. awesome? No. But, you know, it's... Well, the other complaints I heard about the film, and just and, and you've already addressed them, it didn't sound like it was a complaint on your behalf, but I think the people who are up in arms about it and probably influenced a lot more of those negative reviews are people who... Are, you know, the whole idea of the Fantastic Four is they're a family yeah. and it's supposed to be this family relationship. And it sounded like from the film that it didn't really play on the family element as Absolutely much. Absolutely not. And that's, I think, what rubbed a lot of people wrong. Me, I don't have any problem with it. I don't mind adapting source material into something completely different. Well, and that's something yeah. we've talked about before is, are you concerned about making a good movie? Yeah. Or are you concerned about being religious to the source material? Right. And I felt like in this sense, he was referenced being referential to source material, but he wasn't afraid to totally go out on his mm-hmm. own. Like, I don't remember Dr. Doom, like being chummy with the fantastic four at any point. Maybe now, let he me was put on my, my let me put on my, put on, my put geek cap for a second. Yeah, um, so there are two lines of Marvel comics. There's the traditional universe, which is you're exactly right. Dr. Doom was not, Involved the, with them at all. And the Fantastic Four are given their powers by going through a meteor cloud? or Something like that, yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. Then there's the ultimate line of Marvel Comics, which was a one introduced maybe in the mm. last 15 years. Right. It's new. supposed to be a little more Relati- contemporary, give a fresh take new. on everything, a fresh origins. 
And in that version, supposedly that was a little bit more of the source inspiration for this movie. Okay. Dr. Doom or whoever he was, Victor Von Doom was right. actually involved and kind of chummy with Reed Richards okay. and a little bit more involved in, in things. And he was then affected kind of in the same way the other four were. Right. So there is a little bit but of yeah, a basis for the that. And the I, problem I, is, is that from what I've seen and read, the nobody's getting the Dr. Doom character right when he becomes a real bad guy. You know, I, I everything I've seen or understood is it's he's he's a powerful creature, but he, he nowhere have I seen anything that looks like a towering, powerful leader that is using more his power and control to build an army, to build a nation, to well, fight the Fantastic I, I, I Four. I think so. I think I felt like not knowing that you know it was based on maybe mm. a little bit of source material as far as like a revamp of the Fantastic Four. I enjoyed being surprised at how things were because I was only original, only aware of the original stuff. Yeah, and sure. so the stuff about the way certain relationships were there, I was like, oh, that's cool. And the way Dr. Doom is given his powers was original to me. And okay. I thought that was cool. You know, I thought his development actually really worked. Hmm. The problem was his battle scene at the end was ridiculous. So you're saying really, it's not like what you're saying is, you know, Maybe, and we're hypothesizing here a little bit. What if Josh Trank's movie basically was his movie up to that two-thirds part? What if? And then he tried to do an ending that the Fox didn't like and didn't like where it was going. So they basically came in and rushed up a very sloppy, we got to have a big superhero fight scene movie just because we're a superhero movie. And And it just didn't work. And that's what it felt like to me because I had heard some of the negative press and I just really could see how that's exactly – so I – I'm not saying the Josh Trank original would have been amazing, yeah. but I'm saying I think it would have been. It might have been a more than, complete movie, right? Yeah, I, think it was I also heard another tip off on that too. Is that in the whole fat, bat, last third of the movie, Kate Mara wears a wig that <laughs> it looks so ridiculous compared to the rest of the movie, and it's because her hair was different when they went back to reshoot it, so she had to wear a wig. And that's another telltale sign that, yeah, okay, that whole third part was kind of a let's get everybody back together and do this as a new ending. Um, Anyway, I'm fascinated by it. I can't uh, wait to see it just because I am really intrigued. To me, there's a difference between a just a a bad movie that doesn't warrant your time and a movie that many are interpreting as bad, but yet there's a lot of interesting story behind it. I agree. Um, I think what would also be cool, which you and I may live long enough to see it, would be – and I've heard this suggested online would be a documentary about what oh, went wrong. Yeah, I think that'd be like if you know in another ten years or fifteen years, like someone's like, oh, okay, I'd love to watch the that. story, the Fantastic Four flop, and like you know, you get people, you get the director, you get because by that time, legal stuff would have yeah, expired. They it's can, like, okay. they can go and actually talk supposedly openly some about actors it. and stuff. Yeah, I think have kind of made comments. You know, not on the record, but like, uh, yeah, it was kind of crazy. You know, it could well, be like the apocalypse now. Of superheroes movies. Supposedly. And again, this is all just in in press I've been reading. So I'm not saying that this really happened. Absolutely. Supposedly a couple of days before he sent out his tweet. I don't know if it was in an effort to try to rally the troops or whatever, but Josh Trank sent out an email to like all the cast and crew Hmm. and just said, you know what? We made a great movie. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be one of the best superhero movies people have seen. And Miles Teller wrote back. It's like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> really? That's, okay. Again, I had I had heard I had heard yeah, so. the first part about Trank, but I didn't know that Miles Teller yeah. was the one that had his like I don't think so. Yeah. Wow. That's the rumors out. I mean, that's the, again hearsay stories. So well, that's a fun um, little you know. Yeah. 
So you kind of get the impression, even when I watch these actors, like in interviews or talking about this film, they're not into it. They know that it's, it did not work. Hmm. And uh, that's always a shame too. When you got some really good talented actors and they know walking away from a project that, yeah, this isn't going to work for anybody. I wonder if, you know, there's certain, what is it? Hamlet or it's Macbeth. You're not supposed to say Macbeth in a theater because it's bad luck because productions mm-hmm. can get doomed. I wonder if Fantastic Four is just a doomed franchise. You just can't make a movie out of it. I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it because I think, I think it's actually easy to do. Well, they I can, just you don't can think make team movies because they've done the Avengers and yes. they've done X Men. And I mean, this is, a, this is a group of four friends, family, and you know, with interesting powers. I just think. I don't know. I just don't think they've gotten the right talent matched up with the material. Hmm. That's all it is. But I, I honestly believe there's a good movie in there somewhere. A very good movie. I guarantee if, if they announced tomorrow that Marvel got back the rights to Fantastic Four, Fox sold them back. Within three years, Marvel says we're going to do a, a Fantastic Four movie. I'm not going to say it's going to be awesome because I don't really think any of the Marvel movies I've seen are awesome. Hmm. But I will say it's going to be a good take on it. It will be a good performing movie that people will like hmm. in general. Okay. I would say that. Um, so I think there's a good one in there. It's just they just haven't gotten the right talent with it. On the Tim no- Stories was way too watered down and kind of silly and a little juvenile and just not very sophisticated. Sure. The 80s version or 90s version with the Corman was just – they just had to get a film made and they had no intentions of showing it anywhere. This one, I think, was that perfect storm of the director's vision with the studio's vision, with him being an untested director, with them kind of scrambling to make this whole universe they're trying to build work. Just everything gelling together, just a perfect storm of problems. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I think it is a perfect storm, so I don't think it's fair to blame the director at all. I don't think it's fair to blame the uh the studio. studio. I think it's yeah. a perfect marriage of disaster. Interesting. I will say this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the last side note about talking about studios and movies and comic books. Um, who owns Deadpool? Is that would that, be Fox. Okay, so Fox does own that. It's a Marvel character, but Fox owns that. He's in the X-Men universe, so okay. Fox owns him. Yeah. Okay. Because I saw a trailer for that when I went to go see the Fantastic Four. Um, and people, you may have seen it. It was the trailer was a red. Ba- there is a version that's red band that yes. was released on Conan. He showed it, and all. I could see that this is a another tremendous train wreck for um, Fox be. because I am really disinterested in seeing this movie. Well, I will tell you again. I'm it's wearing Ryan my, Reynolds who ruined Green Lantern. I'm apparently. wearing my geek hat just for a little while. Uh, the Deadpool character is insanely popular, although I don't get it. Um, it but just looks I think like, it's a, it looks like kick ass. It looks yeah. like nothing, but I know that it's a he generation was out before it's one generation below us. This is like their Wolverine character. This is their big, big character. This is their Batman character. This is the character everybody gravitates to. Hmm. There was actually, you know, uh, Ryan Reynolds played Deadpool in the Wolverine origins movie. Not the one where he went to Japan. No. This oh. is the first one. The one Did before X-Men see. Origins Wolverine. This is not a very good movie. <laughs> but Ryan Reynolds played Deadpool. Okay. Now it was a completely different take on the character. And I think a lot of fans got kind of ticked. Like, dude, that's not that's not Deadpool. That's not the character at all. So mm-hmm. a little bit of online petitions and all that. Supposedly Ryan Reynolds filmed a scene as a proof of concept with some people to how a real Deadpool movie should look. Hmm. And that scene got put online, turned viral a couple years ago. And then everybody's like, dude, that's the movie we want to see. That's it. That's the tone. That's the style. Oh, my gosh. So that's what they've made. 
Yeah, will it so work? So basically you're saying I'm 100 years old and I'm grandpa saying kids get off my lawn because I think that no. movie looks horrible. No, I'm not saying that because I think it has every chance of being horrible still. Yeah. Uh, what I'm saying is, is Maybe that Fox is, just doesn't need to be allowed to make comic well, book movies. There is enthusiasm for the film. The only thing I'll give it is I'm glad they're being adventurous and trying something really outside the box, which this whole breaking the fourth wall, which is a, a stereotypical thing he does in the comics as well, hmm. addressing the reader and kind of everything is very silly and very kind of over the top. So they're obviously making a movie that matches that same style. It's like an NC-17 version of The Mask. Yes. Yeah, that's it. It's break the fourth wall, talk to the audience, uh, you know. Yes, it's all very meta and silly and all. That's mm-hmm. Deadpool. Okay. Now, they're making a movie with that same style. I applaud them for making it that style. It's definitely going to be different. Yeah, I just uh, don't but, know how it's going to be. And I think, you know, a lot of times I've, I remember, I think I've said it on air, but sometimes movies try to be, you know, they make it PG-13 and they, in a way, it's like, you know what? I know it would have made them as much money, but if they just would have left it R... You yeah. know, then it probably could have been amazing and it wouldn't have tried to cater and try to be make. Well, obviously, this movie is going hard R. Oh, yeah. Because it's just ridiculously over the top violence. I think it could be interesting. Could be. I, I have I no just, interest because, in the character. Because I've seen, um, what was the one I already, Kick Ass? Because yeah. I've seen Kick Ass and didn't like it. Never saw the second one, but I heard it was just more of the first. Mm. I really don't think I'm going to like this. Well, I don't it, care for the character. Okay. I don't care for Ryan Willi- Reynolds. So, yeah, I'm not interested. Right. But I'd be very curious to see what the response is when it comes out. Okay. Whew. That was good. There we go. Yeah. That was good. Was good little in-depth discussion oh, there. One last little thing. Yes. Uh, since before we leave news. So what will Michael B. Jordan be doing next? Well, he's going to be playing oh, yeah. the Black Panther. Not Black Panther. Nope. Um, no, Michael B. Jordan is playing Creed. No, um, well, yeah, but he's going to be in the Avengers movies. He's going to be the Panther. What's, mm, no, that's um, that's the guy who played James Brown in Get On Up. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're right. He's going to be Black Sorry. Panther. There's a reason I was thinking yes. that. Sorry. Yep. He's going to be Black Panther <laughs> right. yep. um, in the next Captain America movie. And then he's going to have his own movie. The, and then we right. have his own movie. You're right. Michael B. Jordan, uh, no, he's in the new movie, which I've seen the trailers for. Actually, believe it or not, I think it looks really good. What's that? Uh, Creed. Oh, Which is the, the Rockies franchise. It's the rebooting he of the Rockies. He is the son franchise. of Apollo Creed. Apollo Creed. And I really liked the trailer because it looked very authentic. It just looked very grounded. And you don't even know it's connected to the Rocky universe until almost the very end. Hmm. So basically it's like a young boxer okay. trying to make a name for himself. And he's haunted by kind of his family, his past. Hmm. But you don't know why. And then towards the end of the trailer, he's in a restaurant with a bunch of photographs and pictures of memorabilia on the wall. And he's looking at a photograph of his father fighting Rocky. And Sylvester Stallone is in the scene talking about his father. And then you're like, oh, I totally get it. That's Apollo Creed's son. Who's directing it? Uh, I don't know. Not Sylvester Stallone. No, it's not Sylvester Stallone. It's somebody. It's actually the person who did Fruitville Station. Really? Yep. Right. So okay. that's why even the trailer, you need to check out the trailer because it it's a like really good movie looking in the trailer anyway. Okay. Um, and hmm. I mean, Michael B. Jordan's very talented. So I, uh, that's at least the next thing I think he'll be in. Okay. Will he dip his toe back into the superhero market? I don't know. It may be quite some time before he tries to do that. 
Okay, so that was really our news section. Normally we have three or four news items to cover, but this is just something I really wanted us to chew into because it kind of hit on a lot of nerves that we like to address here, I think. So, Chris, let's ease into the last part of our show, if we can. Sure. This is where we give our closing recommendation of something online that we think you ought to check out uh, as worth watching, uh, hopefully in some format that you can find easily online, Netflix, uh, iTunes, Amazon, whatever it may be. Uh, Chris, what do you have to share with us? Well, I'm going to recommend two things. Okay. First off is the reason that I got who's playing Black Panther messed up. Ah. Um, I'm going to recommend Get On Up. Are you really? I am. I finally caught up with it. And uh, Chadwick Boseman, who plays yes. James Brown through different you know stages, he plays him younger and then shows him growing older. Um, he is amazing oh, really? in this movie. Awesome. Yes. Good. Um, it'll be interesting to see him be a superhero. Yeah. Um, so I got him confused because I was thinking about my recommendation. But um, – yeah, get on up. I I like James Brown. You know, mm-hmm. he's one of those people that, you know, I know songs that he does, but and I'd heard little snippets of some of the things that he's done that are kind of crazy mm-hmm. sometimes. Yeah. Um, but this movie was really good, and a lot of times when a biopic tries to show you the span of somebody's entire life, we've commented before how often that just seems to be too much, and it's better if you just take like a period and try to do that one period. This movie, I think, manages to give you a span of his life and do it really well. And what's really kind of crazy, too, is they give you the – it's not linear. They jump back and forth in time, mm, okay. and they but they'll give you a time stamp, and they'll give you, like, you know, Mr. Please, Please, Please Me or Mr. Godfather. So, like, they give him, like, kind of a one of his nicknames like for that like era. A, that, like that, that phase of his life. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it, it's interesting some of the commentary that it's hmm. making depending on when they put that on the screen. He does break the fourth wall several times where he'll look at the camera and kind of give a wink or he'll say stuff to the camera. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a meta movie in a way. Interesting. Um, I don't know why this movie didn't get any Academy Award love at hmm. all. It wow. blows my mind how it didn't because I think Chadwick Boseman should have gotten a nomination for being James Brown. Mm-hmm. I think the screenplay – should have gotten some note because it was an original screenplay. You take his life and you're cobbling all this mm-hmm. stuff together. Such an original vision, maybe even some editing, like something, something from this movie, I feel like should have gotten some recognition. And basically it came and went. And oh, yeah, I remember, you know, you would have thought like, Oh, a biopic, but you know, it's not your typical biopic. It is kind of confusing maybe, but that's what I liked about it. Yeah. It was like one of my favorite music Hollywood wow. produced biopics in a long time. See, and that's the thing about it. That's why I didn't rush out to go check it out. Because mm. even though I love movies about music and musicians, I hate the way biopics have become so routine in recent years. I you know, I'm the one that really didn't care for Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash movie, because mm. I just thought, oh, it's just so by the book. And I, like, I liked it, but yeah. yeah, I could see how. And you know, other films since then have just kind of followed that same path. So I've always kind of rolled my eyes at the musical biopic in recent years. So that's why I didn't check out Get On Up because I thought, well, okay, it's worth it. I, it I'd rather watch a documentary type of thing, you know, or argument thing I, with that. You know, but. granted, a documentary would clarify some things, mm-hmm. but that's the other thing I really like about this. It came out, by the way, it came out um, August first, twenty fourteen. So it was like a year ago that this movie came out. So it, I think it got lost in a lot of the summer sure. stuff. And if it had been released later, closer to Oscar season, maybe it would have gotten some love. But that's one of the other reasons I like it is that it's, like you said, it's not typical. It's not typical structure, but it does a really good job of not painting him as an angel. Mm. Um, it, 
Which is good. Which is good. You gotta be honest on these films. And I think it is it is brutally honest. Wow. It shows him as a gifted performer, but it shows his shortcomings and kind of lets you draw your own conclusions. It would still make me interested to see a documentary, but this is one that's what I like about it, is this is one of those films that instead of saying, Oh, a documentary would have been so much better because it would have just, you know, no, I think this film is good because it makes you curious and you feel like I don't feel like they are you know, some documentaries you, or movies you walk away thinking like, oh, I wonder if that really happened or I wonder if they're just staging this. Or I feel like for the most part, the stuff in this movie is probably pretty true. Mm. You know, I, I really feel like it is because it just you don't know why they would be putting things in there because it's like it's I don't know. I, I just I can't. Well, I, I'm intrigued. It I'm really intrigued now. Let me just ask you this. Were there title cards at the end of the film telling what happened to him later in life? Because that seems to be the trope on the biopics you know i mean i'm kind of joking i think there, I think that, there so. were some yes yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't overly bad and there again because i think of how the rest of the movie had gone it, it earned a couple of it, it, it earned a couple of cliches okay yeah that's good um all right well let me recommend something that actually does kind of echo oh, back wait yeah. oh yo you had a second one yeah, i'm sorry go ahead one. this go. is a really quick one if you are unfamiliar with josh trank and haven't seen chronicle and you're just like who is this joker um I have a movie I can – I'll put a link. It's not a movie. It's a short that he did. It's actually how he got permission to do Chronicle. Mm-hmm. It's called Stabbing at Leah's – or Leah's, excuse me, because it references Princess Leia. <laughs> and who knows, maybe – and I think there again, to me, it shows that this guy has a unique vision. He did Chronicle, which was like a unique vision of a superhero movie. He did Stabbing at Leia's, which is kind of a weird cops version of like a star Wars thing. Mm -hmm. I thought it was funny. Does have a lot of foul language, by the way, not for the kids. Um, but I, I really liked it. And grand, you know, like no budget, all this kind of stuff. And the things he did. I saw you listing that on on letterbox and I actually read, Others reviews and uh, I think you're in the minority on people who like it. But, and, that, uh, yeah, and, so. and that's why I think, you know, you're wanting like a Star Wars movie. No, that's not what this yeah. is. But it's somebody actually joking around with the concept, but yet actually paying homage to it. I Stabbing I it at Leia's. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. So you got Get On Up and Stabbing at Leia's. Yes. Well, my recommendation is uh, kind of referencing our first review, especially when it regards to Mr. Tom Cruise. Oh. Um, so HBO has a documentary that you've probably heard about called Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief. I've heard of it. Finally got to catch up with this recently. And uh, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it is a very scathing documentary. Is it about, a 2014 or 2015? It is 2015. Okay. Yeah, it was just, just released maybe two or three months ago. Okay, excellent. Um, it is a very damning documentary on the Scientology religion going all the way back to L. Ron Hubbard and kind of his, uh, the, the creator and a little bit of his background and, and things going on around his life. Then it eases into the guy that's running it now, kind of the lead guy, which, uh, Mechanich, I always forget his name, Miss, Miss Cabbage, David hmm. Miss Cabbage. And it does do a lot of poking at John Travolta, at Tom Cruise, other celebrities who've kind of fallen into the Scientology religion. Now, okay. The thing that makes it the most damning and interesting to watch as a documentary is that there are probably five or six people led by primarily Paul Haggis, the director. He did hmm. the, he did the movie Crash. He did some others. Okay, uh, he was a huge Scientologist for right. many many years, and then he publicly broke away from the, the church. 
And now he's on this documentary along with four or five others speaking very openly and candidly about their experiences years ago, how hmm. they felt they were brought into the organization and how they felt like things got off the rails and where they are now. Hmm. But what's fascinating is hearing them speak now while superseded or, or super or, or mixed in with footage, real footage of them 10 years ago with the Scientology church and either defending it or arguing it or being very public on, on news cameras. Okay. And now you see him being a complete turned face. There's a, there's one scene in particular where, um, uh, CNN Anderson Cooper has an interview that was done several years ago. Sure. With some of the wives of these men who have now left Scientology and are talking trash about it. The women are still in Scientology. They're still in the church. So Anderson Cooper has actually got all five of them in a room and is talking to them as a group about some of these accusations that are coming out about the church. And they are just staunchly defending the church. They're like, oh, no, no, no. It's, none of that stuff's happening. These guys are crazy. They're just trying to get attention, whatever. Hmm. And then hearing these men now like commenting on that and talking about how their wives were even on CNN talking about it. It's a lot of this back and forth about just all these different perceptions and things people are saying about being a part of religion. I just thought it was really well put together. And hmm. I mean, there's no doubt about it. By the end of the documentary, you're pretty much being convinced Scientology is really, really bad. Hmm. And it's doing some horrible things to people's lives. But there's enough people still being documented saying, you know, either while I was in it, uh, there were some really great things that happened, or now I've still got family members that are in it that are still very passionate about it. It's... It leaves a little bit up to the imagination, although the filmmaker obviously wants to paint a very negative picture. Hmm. Uh, it was just interesting to watch. I'm fascinated by the idea of whether you want to call it a cult, whether you want to call it a movement, whatever it is. I'm fascinated by this charismatic leader that can create a society that people want to follow. That to me is just an interesting topic all and around. The director around. is Alex Gibney, right? That's right. Alex Gibney, uh, Taxi to the Dark Side. He did. Um, he's doing the new Steve Jobs documentary that's coming out pretty soon. Um, he's very prolific as a film, as a documentarian. Uh, I think, gosh, and he's, I thought he'd be like a young guy, but no, he's actually kind of an older guy. He's much older than us. He's been doing these films for a long time. So, um, yeah, it was a very interesting, cool, very interesting. So that's our recommendations. That's how we close out the show is we give you a few nuggets of things you may want to go out and find and watch on your own. If you have time, I would say going clear is only on HBO. So, Either if you have HBO, you're set. You can watch it. It's on the HBO app if you have HBO. If you don't have HBO, and I'm only saying this because the actual president of HBO has gone public and saying this. He does not mind people sharing login and passwords. He'd rather people get to see the content. So find a friend of yours that has HBO and doesn't mind giving you the login and password so you can watch it on your own. Okay. That being said, I'm only (laughs) echoing what's been said. I'm not advocating stealing. Fair enough. So Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, we were both, eh, I liked it fine enough. You didn't care for it, but we did both thought it was an improvement over the last one. Far from the matting crowd, I really, really liked, Chris <laughs> liked one element of it while he really rolled his eyes and had almost too much fun with the other element of it, <laughs> mainly the story. Fantastic Four, we talked about, Chris saying not a great movie at all. Uh, it was a bad movie. But it had something going for it that could have made it a interesting, good, decent movie if maybe there had not been a lot of inner turmoil during the production. Right. 
And then we've got Going Clear, Scientology, and The Prison of Belief as a recommendation on HBO. Then we had uh, the recommendation of Get On Up, the James Brown biopic, and the Josh Trank short you can find online, uh, Stabbing stabbing at at Leia's. Okay. A lot of interesting things in the last hour, hour 15 we've been talking about. So uh, this has been Foot Candle Films. Again, Foot Candle Film Society is our group that we uh, get together and show films once a month. You can find out more about the Film Society at footcandle.org. But Chris, if if anybody wanted to kind of connect with us in in other various ways or find more information, basically where would they go? What's, What's their options here? Well, we also are both on Letterboxd, and oh, yeah. we review stuff on there and give little review, uh, you know, rankings and stuff. You can find that on there. We're also, if you want to leave a comment about something we've said or want to suggest a movie, just simply emailing at info at the mesh.tv, tag it with foot candle. They can get a hold of us that way. So, and you and I are actually both on Twitter as well. So That's true. That. I'm at Alan Jackson, A-L-A-N-J-A-C-K-S-O-N. You're at Chris Fry. That's right. We yeah. were fortunate enough to be able to have our first and last name as our Twitter handle. So That's right. uh, I keep waiting for the country singer to call and make a bid <laughs> on my Twitter handle. Hasn't happened yet. So I'm just still waiting. Maybe one day. All right, so we're going to wrap it up for today. Uh, again, TheMesh.TV. As Chris said, give us some feedback. We'd love to hear our iTunes comments and star ratings as well. Those are also That's welcome. a great way to get a hold, kind of give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. So next time, we'll have some more films to review, some news to talk about, and recommendations to give. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Foot Candle Films. See you in the ticket line. Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.